Welcome to this week's edition of Ocean Allison, where I bring you the best in ocean science, education, and conservation through conversations with people who are creating positive change for the ocean. Ocean Advocate is Dr. Lauren Toth. Lauren is a coral reef ecologist looking into the past to answer questions about the future of coral reef ecosystems. Hi, Lauren. Welcome to the show. Hi, Allison. Thanks for having me. Yeah, very excited to talk to you today. For our listeners, to give you guys a little bit of background as to how Lauren and I know each other, Lauren was my mentor, advisee, I don't really know what you call it, but while I was in undergrad. So uh, I was getting my undergraduate degree at Florida Institute of Technology in marine biology, and Lauren was doing her PhD there, and I started working in her lab as a freshman. And then eventually over time, after helping her with her research and sorting and weighing and washing all these coral pieces, uh, then I actually ended up doing some of my own undergrad research under her, and she definitely taught me a lot about science and coral reefs and all that good stuff. So Definitely happy to have Lauren on the show today. And like I said in the beginning, Lauren is a coral reef ecologist, and she is looking at the fossil record of coral reefs. And she does that by getting these things called coral reef cores. And I was hoping, Lauren, that you could explain to our listeners what is a coral reef core and how do you go about obtaining one? So a coral reef core is just a section of the entire reef that we can collect to look at the history Um, of that reef. So when you're swimming over top of a reef, you're only looking at this very, very thin surface part of the reef that's alive. But that reef has actually been built up over thousands and thousands of years. And what we're collecting with the core is the record of thousands of years of reef growth. So there's a couple of different ways that we can get these core records. Basically, a core will just be a pipe that goes down into the reef and then The coral material gets trapped in that pipe and we can pull it out so we can look at how the reef grew through time. With my work in Panama, those reefs are really interesting because they're not solid like you would usually think of a reef. They're really just these broken up pieces of coral that are stuck in mud and that's how the reef record is preserved. So in that area, um, we can collect the cores just by taking these 20 foot long pipes and pounding them by hand down into the reef. So we have this sliding hammer weight um, that we put over the top of the pipe and just hammer down onto it until we've collected about 20 feet of the reef. And then we can pull it back out and then later extract all that material so we have that record. Um, What I'm doing now in the Florida Keys is uh, a little more high tech. We are actually taking a really large drill, a hydraulic run drill, that powers the drilling. So we're actually using a machine to drill down into the reef, but it's the same idea. We're doing that so we can get this section of the reef through time. And so you collect this kind of long tube piece of the reef through time. What do you do with that long tube to actually get some data out of it to look at how has this reef been changing and growing over time? So we'll take all the coral material out of the core tube, 
And then we have to get it cleaned up into a shape where we can actually look at it. Um, and this is especially true for those reefs in Panama that are just coral sitting in mud. So what we do there is we'll actually cut the core into much smaller sections, and then we'll take every section, get rid of all the sediment by washing it away, and collect all the larger material, which will be the corals and other snails and bivalves that might live in the reef. We'll wash them really, really well, look at what species are there and the condition that the coral skeletons are in, and that can tell us about how well the reef may have been growing in the past. So certain species that you see will indicate a healthy, really fast-growing reef, but then there's other species that only show up when the reef is stressed. And so by looking at the relative amounts of these different corals, we're able to get an idea of the history of the reefs in that area. And then we back all of that up by doing radiocarbon dating on the cores. And so we'll do a whole bunch of dates up the core so we can look at the timing of different changes in the past. And so your PhD research that I helped you with some was, like you said, mostly looking at coral reefs in Pacific Panama. Can you tell us what were the main conclusions that you got from that research? Well, the reefs in Pacific Panama um, turned out to be really, really interesting. We looked at cores from a whole bunch of different locations in the area and a whole bunch of different cores per reef. And on every single core, we found that there was a layer within it that would indicate that there was a time when the reef wasn't very healthy. And in most cases, that layer was really, really small in the length of the core. But when we dated it, we found that in all of those cores, that small layer turned out to be representative of about 2,500 years in the history of the reef. Um, which would indicate that for about 2,500 years, from about 4,000 to um, 1,500 years ago, those reefs really weren't building up reef. They weren't growing the way that we would expect a reef would. And so this hiatus that you found, this 2,500-year-long period where the reefs in Pacific Panama basically weren't growing, what could have been the cause of that, or what do you suspect was the cause of it? Well, we looked at a whole bunch of records from all over the Pacific to try to look at what might have been going on at that time. And it turned out that that period, that 2,500-year period, was a time when the El Nino Southern Oscillation was especially active. Currently, in Pacific Panama, we know that the El Nino Southern Oscillation, or ENSO, really strongly impacts coral reefs. So, during an El Nino event, the waters get really warm, and all corals, all shallow water corals, have a um, symbiotic relationship with these algae that live in their tissues. The algae will photosynthesize, and they give the corals most of their food requirements, but when the water gets too hot, that relationship will break down. The corals will actually expel those algae from their tissues, and if they don't get them back, if the water doesn't cool soon enough, um, the corals will starve and die. So we know El Nino is currently pretty bad for corals in the Eastern Pacific um, and really everywhere. La Nina is also pretty bad for corals. During a La Nina event, you get cooler water temperatures, which corals also don't like it when it gets too cold. Um, you also get an overall lower sea level during La Nina. 
And because of that, corals will get exposed um, to the air when tides are low, and corals can't grow very well out of water, so they don't like that either. Um, and you also get a whole lot of rain in Pacific Panama during La Nina events. And one of the things that really limits corals in this area is how much light they're getting. The water in, in Pacific Panama is not what you typically think of of a coral reef. It's pretty murky. So these corals are living at the limits of what they can tolerate in terms of light. And remember, they need that light for the algae to photosynthesize. So when it rains a lot, you get all kinds of sediments coming off the land, which makes the water even murkier. And so corals can actually die because they're not getting enough light coming into the water. So currently, El Nino and La Nina are both pretty bad for corals. And what we think occurred in the past is that either the frequency or the intensity of those events was stronger. And that really just pushed these communities over the edge to a point where they weren't keeping up or they weren't able to recover fast enough to build reefs. This really long hiatus that you were able to discover during your graduate research, had this ever been a topic that anyone had ever brought up before or connected those dots? No, um, there really hadn't been much study of the reefs in Pacific Panama, um, or really in most places in the Eastern Pacific. There are a lot of really great researchers who have studied modern reefs in the area, and it is a really interesting place to work. But nobody had looked at that long-term history, which turned out to be really important in understanding these reefs. So you were able to find out this really incredible and important piece of the puzzle looking at coral reef history and finding this hiatus linked to climatic variability with El Nino and La Nina. So after you were done doing your PhD, you were brought on to do postdoc work with USGS, which is the United States Geological Survey, and that's where you're currently still working. And they brought you on to study a very similar thing with looking at the fossil record of coral reefs, but now instead of in Pacific Panama or even just in the Pacific Ocean, uh, now in the coral reefs in the Florida Keys. So what is your primary research goal in looking at the past growth and dynamics of these coral reefs in the Florida Keys? Well, we know that in the Florida Keys, reefs, and really around the Caribbean and in most places around the world, we've seen recent declines in the health of the reefs. So over the last several decades, there's been a lot of corals that have died, um, and as a result, the cover of live coral on the reefs has declined pretty dramatically over time. But if you think about how long a coral lives or how long a reef lives, most individual corals will live for hundreds to thousands of years. And so the lifespan of even a coral, not just a reef, is much longer than what we can see in these recent historical records. We really need to look at that longer-term context to understand what really controls reefs through time and what might control how they respond to changes in the future. Why are you and why is USGS interested in studying the coral reefs in the Florida Keys in particular? Well, the Florida Keys is a really important area for Florida's economy, for the U.S. economy. The reefs there are potentially important for protecting the shorelines from hurricanes 
and for providing habitat for all kinds of organisms that we rely on for food. So understanding how these reefs may have responded to different environmental changes in the past can give scientists and policymakers some insights into how they might be better managed in the future. And so what conclusions have you drawn from looking at the fossil record of Florida Keys reefs thus far? So I was really lucky when I came to USGS to be able to leverage over 50 years worth of work that's been done in this area. Unlike Panama, where we were really coming into the to the region knowing nothing about the history of these reefs, people have been collecting cores of the reefs throughout the Florida Keys since the 1950s. And so because of that, USGS has this really great archive of about 100 core records from all over the Florida Keys. I was able to go out and take cores myself to fill in some of those areas where we didn't have data. And after doing a whole bunch of dating on those cores and really looking at them carefully, what we found is that there are some pretty big differences in how these reefs grew in the past based on where you are in the Florida Keys. So one way you can look at how well a reef has grown overall in the past is just to look at how thick it is. So you would imagine that if a reef had been really healthy through its whole history, it would be really thick because it would have built up a whole bunch of reef. But a reef that didn't do so well would be thinner. And so one thing that we can look at in these cores is just how much reef is there. So how much reef has grown over the last 10,000 years or so. And what we found is that some places, um, like Dry Tortugas National Park, grew quite a bit of reef over the last 10,000 years. Um, It's some of the thickest reefs in the area and pretty comparable to other places in the Caribbean. But other places in the Florida Keys, especially in kind of the middle Florida Keys area, places like off of Marathon, are much, much thinner. Those reefs are only about a third as thick as um, the reefs in the dry tortugas. And we found out that the reason for that is that they didn't grow very long. The reefs in the Middle Keys really only grew from about 8,000 to 6,000 years ago. That was the only time reef um, was being built in that area. Whereas in the dry tortugas, reefs started growing around 8,000 years ago. And then they also stopped growing, but much later, closer to around 3,000 years ago. So there's, I think, several different reasons for these patterns. One thing that that really impacted the Keys in the past was the flooding of the Florida Bay. Florida Bay is a very shallow area, and anytime you have shallow water, that water can change conditions really fast. So it can get superheated, it can get super cooled, you can have high concentrations of nutrients, high concentrations of sediment. And it turns out that currently... On every single tidal cycle, the water from the Florida Bay is pushed out onto the reefs in the Middle Keys. And reefs don't like conditions to be variable like that. They like when conditions are very stable. So that flooding of the Florida Bay with rising sea level would have occurred just at the time where those reefs stopped growing. And so I think that's what caused the reefs in that area to shut down. But then later declines in the reef probably had to do with changing climate. If you look at kind of general trends in climate over the last 10,000 years, 
There was a period known as the Mid-Holocene. Holocene is the period from 10,000 years ago to present. The Mid-Holocene Climatic Optimum. And this was just a relatively warm period in our history. And reefs generally like conditions to be fairly warm. That's why they're found in the tropics. But after that period, which ended about 6,000 years ago, temperatures declined for the next several thousand years. And because Florida is not tropical, it's subtropical, it's already at the limit of where reefs can possibly exist. And so what we think happened is that as the climate cooled, reefs really just weren't able to grow as well as they had in the past. And so they stopped building up that reef structure. Just to make it clear for our listeners, uh, when Lauren says that these reefs haven't been growing for some 3,000 years or they they stopped growing at some point, uh, that doesn't mean that when you go snorkeling in the Florida Keys, you won't see live corals on these beautiful coral reefs. It's that the specific individual corals haven't been building structures. Lauren, can you elaborate on that a little bit? I'm not sure if I'm explaining it super well. Sure. So when we think about building reefs, the way that geologists like to talk about it is in terms of reef accretion. And accretion is the buildup of that entire reef structure over thousands of years. And when you're talking about that long of a time period, you can't just look at the growth of individual corals. That does go into the equation, and that's a big part of the positive side of that equation. But there's also a negative side to that equation, which includes erosion of reef, just compression of reef or collapse of reef. And all that gets averaged in to give you a net accretion or net reef growth rate. So when I'm saying that the reefs weren't growing, it didn't mean individual corals weren't growing. It just means that over these longer timescales, no new structure was being built. These conclusions that you've been able to draw about coral reefs in the Florida Keys and how they've been affected by climatic changes in the past, how do you think that this this information could potentially be implemented to better protect these reefs or better preserve these reefs? Well, I think that this sort of research gives some really good insight into what we might expect in the future. So both of the places where I've looked at the history of these reefs, the growth and development of reefs was really tightly linked with climate. In Pacific Panama, increases in El Nino Southern Oscillation really drove the dynamics of those reefs. And in the Florida Keys, the general kind of climate conditions, um, that climatic cooling that happened over several thousand years, may have contributed to the decline of those reefs. Currently, temperatures are warmer than they ever were in the Holocene and really warmer than they have been in a really, really long time. So there's no reason to expect that climate will not continue to drive the dynamics of reefs in the future. So one important message of my research, I think, is just the importance of understanding that relationship as we think about how to manage reefs into the future. Another potential um, outcome in the Florida Keys is that we we can learn something about the conditions that made reefs more or less susceptible to climate changes. So we had earlier declines in those reefs in the Middle Keys that were also impacted by these local stressors associated with um, that water from the Florida Bay, whereas 
the more open ocean kind of conditions in the dry tortugas, let those reefs hang on a little bit longer. So knowing about kind of these long-term controls on what allows a reef to survive versus decline might help managers pick areas to target for conservation or or potentially pick kind of local processes that they can target that might help reefs. And so Lauren is not only a coral reef ecologist working on helping us to understand our coral reef ecosystems and how we can potentially protect them in the future, but she also has a undergraduate degree in film production from University of Miami. So somewhere along the way, Lauren transitioned from film production into coral reef science, but her film production experience has led her to actually co-found a really cool organization called Youth Making Ripples. And this is a nonprofit organization that is essentially a film competition for K through 12 students. And uh, I've had the opportunity to be a judge of these films for the last few years. And it's always really exciting to see what these kids come up with. Lauren, can you tell us a bit about founding Youth Making Ripples and what your mission is with that? Sure. So about four years ago, my co-founder, partner in Youth Making Ripples, and I became involved in an organization called Beneath the Waves. Um, It's a nonprofit organization that has the goal to conserve ocean resources and promote education and understanding about marine conservation. When we joined Beneath the Waves, we were interested in expanding a program that they already had that asked professional filmmakers, scientists, graduate students to try to make films about either their research or other ocean-related topics. Our goal was to expand that program to include K-12 students. So we started Youth Making Ripples um, about four years ago. We've had three competitions so far. The requirements of our annual competition are just that students make a film about any marine science topic that they're interested in, but it has to be less than five minutes long. Since we started it, we've had about 100 films come in every year. We've reached thousands of students through this program, both around the country as well as around the European Union. We've really just had a great response. We've gotten, as you said, some really excellent films from these students that are really passionate about sharing their message about the ocean as much as they can. If there are any students listening or teachers listening, parents that have K-12 through students, how can they get involved with Youth Making Ripples? Um, well, I encourage any students or teachers to visit our website. If you just Google Youth Making Ripples, it'll be the first one to come up. You can also email me or my partner, Phil Gravenise, personally at youthmakingripples at gmail.com. Um, I'm sure Allison will share that information as well. And we have all kinds of resources on our website that are available to students and teachers, information about free software that they can use to help make their films, suggestions of places where they can get free music and imagery, and just all the general details about the program are up there. And I would definitely encourage anybody who thinks that they have a message that they want to share about the ocean to submit a film. We show the films at film festivals um, around the country, so the films get to be seen by a lot of people. We also post them on our website and social media, so people can check them out there. 
beyond that, there's also the possibility of getting some really great prizes. We always give scholarships, small scholarships to our top winners. We also have an annual expedition for some of our winners. Um, this year, we did a really cool shark tagging trip off of Miami. Got to get up close and personal with a bunch of really huge um, hammerhead sharks. So it's really just a great program for anybody interested in the ocean to get involved in. Part of the reason why you founded Youth Making Ripples and are involved with this is because you're very interested in science communication. That's also a reason why you're on this podcast (laughs) right now. Can you talk a little bit about the importance of science communication to you and inspiring youth and just inspiring the public in general about your science? Yeah, I think science communication is hugely important. You know, we think of our, our job as scientists to be going out and doing research and collecting data, publishing our results. But I really think that's only a small part of what we should be doing. If we're not sharing what we're doing with the general public and policymakers and decision makers, what we're doing really doesn't matter. We need to be sharing what we learn with everybody and that we can. And so I think science communication is an important responsibility that all scientists uh, should try to do. I love that that's something that you're so passionate about. And I hope that maybe in the future someday science communication is actually part of a scientist's job, you know, not just something that they do extra because they think it's important. So it's great that you're doing that. One last question for you, Lauren, and I think it's kind of in two parts. What are some of the best ways that humans can protect coral reefs? You have learned so much about coral reef history, whether it's looking back 5,000 years, 7,000 years, 10,000 years. You've learned about how they respond to different environmental conditions. How do you think we can protect our coral reefs now and in the future? And like I said, on kind of two parts, one on a larger governmental scale and then one on a individual scale? Well, I think that with all the coral reef research that's been done by people before me, as well as what I've learned in my own research, there is absolutely no doubt that climate is the number one control on coral reefs, both currently and in the past. So I think that the number one thing that needs to happen if we want to preserve coral reefs going into the future is carbon control. Temperatures have been increasing at an unprecedented scale. As I said earlier, corals do not like it when it gets too hot. Coral bleaching has been responsible for coral reefs dying around the world in recent decades. And we're actually currently in what might be one of the strongest El Nino events in history. The increases in temperature that we've seen this year are part of that natural phenomenon, but they're also intensified by the overall trend in warming that we've seen over the last 50 years or so. So the number one thing that governments should be doing is thinking about how to control carbon dioxide emissions. That's a huge problem, um, and it's going to take a lot of commitment from a lot of people. But on an individual level, it's also up to all of us to petition our government and make it a priority that they really care about. Because until everybody around the world cares, politicians aren't going to take any action. That is, I think, the most important thing that we can do. But that doesn't mean that 
what we do on a local level um, also doesn't matter. I think there are local things that we can do to protect our reefs. People who live in coastal communities um, should be conscious of their impacts on the ocean, whether by coastal runoff or using resources like fish from the ocean. Even just really small things like making sure not to drop your anchor on a coral. All those things do add up to some degree. So we really just in general should be more conscious about how the actions that we take, um, whether small or large, are impacting the oceans. And then finally, I think just having more education um, about coral reefs and just listening to things like this podcast and learning as much as you can about the ocean, spreading what you learn to people um, will really change the culture of how we think about the oceans and hopefully um, what we do to protect them. Awesome. Well, for our listeners, I'm going to be linking to two different web pages on the USGS website that talks all about Lauren's coral reef research in the Florida Keys and also has some really cool pictures of her doing her thing underwater. And then I'll also link to the Youth Making Ripples website and social media on Facebook. So you guys can check out Lauren's research as well as get involved with Youth Making Ripples film competition in whatever way that you would like. So Lauren, I want to thank you so much for being on the show, sharing your science with us and your passion for science communication and for all of the awesome things that you're doing for the ocean. Thanks for having me. It was fun. You just heard Dr. Lauren Toth, coral reef ecologist looking into the past to answer questions about the future of coral reef ecosystems. To learn more about the topics discussed in this podcast, visit my website at allisonrandolph.com and tune into next week's episode to hear another conversation between me and someone creating positive change for the ocean.